Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio for Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is co-host Colt Malson. Welcome, Colt. Hey, good to be here. Thank you, thank you. On this July 4th, uh, we're celebrating. Um, we'll be talking with uh, Felipe Osa, who is a Brooklyn-based writer. For his work um, as a playwright, he was named an artist-in-residence in New York's Dixon Place, which culminated in a presentation of Sabrina La Capriosa, Sabrina the Capricious. Uh, other work developed at Nick Dixon includes multimedia show, solo show The Ultimate Stimulus and Fulana. The Ultimate Stimulus was performed at the Cincinnati Fringe Festival and the New York International Fringe Festival in 2014. Got some rave reviews. Um, his play, Monetizing Emma, won Best Script and Best Overall Production in the 2009 Planet Connections Theater Festival in New York. Uh, Emma was nominated for, uh, was mounted in um, Indiana. In Chicago and earned glowing reviews in the Fringe Festival as theater, as non-theater media. Um, Felipe is Deputy Managing Editor of Red, R-E-D-D, Intelligence, a website f- reporting on the finance of Latin American companies, particularly those who are at riskier bets. His favorite part of the job is covering corrupt executives who leave behind a huge digital footprint and yet somehow thought they'd get away with it. As a reporter, Felipe has published stories in Salon, NewYorkMagazine.com, uh, Risk España, and Dow Jones Newswires, among other media. Essentially in immigrants, he works in Santiago for five years, covering business and finance. Is Felipe online? Yeah, see. I'm here. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, great, great. Thanks. Thanks so much. So um, why don't we start the conversation off a little bit about your uh, uh, writing. Tell us a little bit about the, the themes and how, it infl- how your journalism has influenced your writing the themes of your writing and what, what uh, ideas and, and uh, territory you explore in your writing? Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, so I've been a financial journalist for, um, oh, my God, since the late 90s. Um, I was a correspondent in Chile for Dow Jones Newswires. Um, and, uh, and since then, I've covered different facets of finance. Um, and that sort of, I guess, kind of seeped into my work in different ways. Um, you can almost say it's like contaminated my work, <laughs> polluted my work. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, like economic finance themes, uh, not always, but just often have come up again and again in, in, my, uh, in my writing. Even when I'm like, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm going to start something and it's going to be about, you know, something else. And then I just find uh, my mind goes back to that, to those, um, to those sorts of themes. Um, so, you know, to uh, like my most recent piece, uh, The Ultimate Stimulus, which uh, I did through the Brick Theater. Um, uh, it's a Williamsburg-based uh, theater. And uh, my main collaborators are, um, just to give them a shout-out, uh, Sarah Walkowitz and Tanya O'Debra, um, who are absolutely terrific and have helped me. We've developed this piece very closely, the three of us. Um, also, Max Walkowitz, who was uh, the animator um, on it. And um, so it's like a satire of a TED Talk. Um, and it's basically this fictitious economist who... Um, uh, think she's kind of found the solution to wealth inequality in America. 
and it's concubinage. It's like kind of an erotic solution to um, this problem. And so it's an argument. It's very, it's a, it's a little bit like a modest proposal. Um, that was the seed of it. Um, I was like rereading Swift uh, and, uh, and I just, you know, also watching TED Talks. And I was just thinking a lot of like, wow, these people are solving really, really complex problems in 20 minutes. And, um, you know, which also says something about, I think, our, our society. But, um, but I thought, like, I'm going to solve a really complex problem in, in, you know, like half an hour or 40 minutes. Um, but then, of course, it gets very complicated because you have to kind of design. In this case, you have to design what would the world look like if, you know, master slash mistress concubine relationships were um, okay and actually sanctioned by the government. Like, what would, what would that mean? And so, um, you know, you have to build out the whole, the whole scenario. Um, so, yeah, I would say that's one where, like, the economics are just always there. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you have, like, uh, just to tell listeners, it has 1.7 thousand views, so you got a lot of views on that. And it's interesting, since I was trying to figure out, as watching it, um, how much truth there is in it, and I was a little confused by that. Like how much, um, how much it, like the, the multimillionaires that you, um, multi-billionaires even, uh, that you target, yeah. um, you know, they, they have, supposedly have relationships with, um, up and coming people who are struggling people in the class, in different classes, uh, different economic classes. Um, and I was curious, like how much of that is based in truth or what is the, what is the actual truth as opposed to, the fictitious idea of them having sexual relations with these people. Um, what is the actual truth? Well, I mean, no, I mean, it's completely made up. I don't, I don't, yeah. uh, there's uh, Alice. Well, one of the characters is a uh, Walmart era, um, um, who I believe is the wealthiest woman. if not in America in the, I mean, not only in America, but I think probably the Western hemisphere. Um, and no, 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 it's completely. Okay. Because I was like, yeah, yeah, I was no. like, do they actually have like uh, tutelages or something? I don't know. It's like you know? that Conan yeah, or Kuna. I mean, well, like what I try to do, I hope somewhat successfully is, you know, you, you're you feeding or I'm feeding off of, or my collaborators and I are feeding off of like things that actually exist, right? Yeah. Things of like um, sugardaddy.com, like those kinds oh, of yeah. websites and like, um, there are things in it, of course, that, that exist that are in our world today. Yeah. Um, that if you just tweak them a little bit, would work. Yeah. Right? For this sort of absurdist um, scenario. Um, you know, there's a lot in it that, uh, like, one thing I was uh, uh, really thinking about a lot as I was developing it is, um, you know, how with, like, a single solution, how easy it is to just sort of, like, gloss over um, well, just how incredibly complicated this problem is, right? It's existed for, for a while. It's gotten worse since the mid-century. And, um, um, yeah, how, 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 you know, uh, I think a, a, a real, a genuine effort to, to reduce these disparities would probably involve a whole matrix of policies, right? Mm. And some are very boring. <clears throat> they involve taxes, you know, rethinking our tax code. Um, you know, and, and, and things like that. And, uh, yeah. And also I would say the appeal, the appeal is just like one solution. I'm sorry. 
I was just going to say that, um, you know, like, uh, yeah, just simple, simple solutions that, and yet at the same time, so many people are opposed to it due to these talking points that, um, some certain people are promoting. It's like the sheep are defending the rights of the wolf, you know? It's like that's something that comes right. idea to me that it's like, um, you know, the, the common person who's making like maybe $50,000 a year is like defending the people who are making billions and billions of dollars a year. And they're to the, to their last breath, they'd be like, we don't want to, include socialism in our in our country because of all the uh baggage around that but at the same time it's like they're not exactly defending their own uh self-interest you know right right um but absolutely even saying that even looking looking a little critically i think that like you know i think there's there was so much um usefulness to like the whole one percent uh you know occupy wall street they got us all thinking about these billionaires, right? But like, there's a lot of problem in this country, I think, which is like the ten, the ten percent, the five percent. You know, the yeah. privileges that that you know um, that, and so and so, how easy it is to just like, well, if we just say like the one percent, then you're just demonizing a very very small percentage of the population, and everyone else kind of gets off gets off in a way, right? Yeah. That's also like one of the things in the ultimate stimulus. There's like, you know, she has to. First, the program is for sort of poor people, but then it's sort of like for working class, middle class people. And then it's like, oh, there's an upper middle class person who becomes, you know, concubine to somebody very wealthy. So, like, there's a little something in it for everyone. Right. And and that can be a problem, too, because that's often how you sell policies in this country. Right. First, mm. it's like, well, let's alleviate poverty. But then it's like, well, what do I get? You know, like, I'm not yeah. rich, but like and so the government has to come with like, well, you know, you get a mortgage deduction. <laughs> Or, you know, and uh, those things exacerbate inequality. So the economic inequality is like it's a hot topic right now, but you've been um, sort of in the economic industry since the 90s. Like, do you think uh, over the decades it's like it's a better conversation now or do you think it's it's uh, compared to like the 90s and, you know, economic talks? Like, do do you like it now better than back then or? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, like, I think that it's certainly more, like, everyone just knows about it, right? Like, and the scholarship um, is more, like, has been mainstreamed, right? Because, like, you know, like, just regular um, websites and, and, and newspapers will have articles about it that some of them do really deep dives into, like, the data is, is really good, right, in the last, like, 10 years. We just have, I'm thinking like since Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. It's just part of the, the national conversation. And so we all just know so much more about it. And like for elements of it, like for example, like the racial component, which is so important. Um, we just, there's just much more scholarship. I mean, it's debated, of course. It's not that uh, uh, there's necessarily a consensus on a lot of this, but, but it's out there and it's available um, and accessible, right, for us to read. I think in that sense, um, yeah, there's been a lot of improvement. I think there was a lot of resistance um, back then as to like, well, is it really getting worse? I mean, it's already gotten worse for, right? It's more or less since the mid-century. I'm just thinking of the U.S. right now um, because I'm Chilean-American and I've spent time in Chile. Chile's kind of like a whole different uh, ballgame. Latin America is in in general. But, um, But yeah, uh, I think, you know, the 90s were just such a particular 
time because uh, in some ways uh, it just felt like all this stuff had been like resolved. Like I'm thinking of like Clinton and, you know, Democrats that were just completely embracing, uh, I guess, what people would call now like neoliberal policies or, you know, policies that were like very market friendly and didn't didn't really address um, inequalities or if they did uh, in a sort of like, you know, like perfunctory manner. Right. And so um, it did feel like, you know, things were probably were getting better. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's so, um, maybe it's combined with the te- technology, like the Internet and technology. And all. everyone has a camera on the phone and can express their opinions online. So I think it's um, I think it's something that might have been affected by the technology um, advances that they've made on the last 20 minute, 20 years, too. So you're saying like you're uh, you're saying like disenfranchised people are people that felt that they were sort of um, excluded from economic progress or have more of a voice. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense, right? And they would be, and they'd be the audience too for a lot of this. Um, and they're seeing their 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 opinions supported by the data, right? Uh, by the research, a lot of great research that has come out um, since then about about inequality, how it works, the roots of it, right, how systemic it is, how, you know, I think what, you know, in, in a lot of the, thinking of it in terms of, like, right and left, you know, it's like the right can kind of, it does a very good job, I think, of kind of convincing that, like, well, you know, this is sort of organic. Like, the free market isn't this organic thing that just sort of happens, and we just have to let it happen, and, like, progress happens. But in some ways, it's not. It's imposed. It's imposed from the state it's imposed by the government um you know just like the far left <laughs> um mm-hmm. so you know it, uh i think that's i think more people are willing to accept that yeah and i'd be curious to get into chilean politics a little bit uh about how it's a point of comparison over the years to american politics and how americans involvement in latin america and interventions have influenced chilean politics to you know, I know you were discussing a little bit about the Pino uh, regime, uh, Pinochet regime. Um, yeah. Have you talked a little bit about that and your experience under that uh, dictatorship and how what, what lessons perhaps were, were um, gained from that uh, in the society, in Chilean society, uh, what, how they've gone from there? Yeah, I mean, it's such a huge question. So I was... Um just to give a little bit more background, uh, I grew up in uh, right outside New York uh, City, and then uh, in the 80s, uh, as a kid, we would travel to Chile. So this was under the dictatorship, like every couple of years. Um, and um, so, you know, I was quite young, and uh, it just it felt like a strange place to me, sinister in many ways, right? You see, like, military police on street corners. Um, and it's also where most of my family was. Uh, so, you know, also a place of, like, a lot of warmth and affection and, uh, and like, a million miles away, right? You just get on this airplane and it was, like, 12 hours. And, um, and then, let's see, democracy was restored in, I think it was 88, Um and or at least I think that's when the, the plebiscite was whether to um, it was like a yes or no for or against uh, the dictatorship. Um, and then 
Um, and then the 90s came along and there were, you know, there was a kind of like center left government. Uh, and that's when I lived there um, in the late 90s, uh, uh, working as a journalist, mostly. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm taking so maybe I'll try to separate out these two things like politics. Um, you're asking whether uh, like what what Chileans have learned from the dictatorship? Yeah, and, wh- and what, what the um, outcome of the democracy, like, you knows what, what kinds of democratic climates are they, what kind of, like, are they going towards socialism? Are they going towards more Yeah, okay, leftist? okay, so that's a great yeah. question. Okay, yeah. yeah, now I get it. Um, I, yeah. So I'm a little bit aloof from this, so don't, you know, um, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm, like, super well-informed because uh, I've been out of it um, for a while, uh, just kind of watching from a distance. Uh, except for work, but work, we don't really cover Chile so much. Um, but uh, so right now, so most recently uh, what's happened is there were a lot of protests in Chile, um, 19, uh, no, sorry, 2019. Uh, and these had to do entirely with inequality, right? Um, uh, Chile had, you know, for many years been sort of like the poster child for, um, like a pretty free market economy for Latin America and seemed to be doing quite well. Uh, you know, seemed to be doing quite well if you looked at GDP. But, you know, if you looked at other indicators, um, perhaps wasn't doing so well. And also just inequality just had not gotten better. So the piece of the pie got bigger. Um, it is true that lots of people, um, uh, poverty was reduced and extreme poverty, I think in particular, fell by a lot. But there's a lot of um, a lot of people feeling uh, disenfranchised, and uh, and that kind of blew up in uh, in 2019. Um, a lot of protests, which led um, the government to um, to establish a vote, like a plebiscite, for what people wanted a new constitution, and uh, the constitution that um, I guess is still in effect in Chile was drafted under Pinochet in, like, 1980. So, you know, like, it is ridiculous that, you know, the, the country had been living under a constitution that was drafted under a dictatorship. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, with the dictatorship, Pinochet, how long did it last? Because I think Isabel Allende, the author, the Chilean author, I think she was somehow involved in this. She had family or something. That it's, um, as, I, I thought that was, so it must have been, like, the early 70s to the 80s, so it wasn't. Yeah, exactly. It was really long. It was 73 to uh, 88, I think is the correct. I never get the, the end. I'm, I'm, I'm going to look uh, like when the plebiscite was and when like the actual Aylwin is the name of the next, the first president uh, when democracy was restored when he came in. I think it was 90. So there's like a, a little fuzzy area like towards at the end, very end of the 90s. But we'll say like he was in power for for 16 years, I think. Okay. 16 years. Yeah. It's a really long yeah, Isabel Allende, I think, is the niece of Allende, who was the Marxist uh, president, who Pinochet uh, overthrew in 73. Um, mm. Yeah, her first really book, House of the Spirits, I think that's one of the, the themes. That's a, a, it's really... Yeah, yeah, she's, yeah. She was in exile, I think, the entire time. I'm not sure. I want to say she was, like, already out of the country, even when he came in, but I'm not, I'm not sure. You know, she lives in, like, California. Um, but, uh, so right now, 
there's like so there was uh, a vote. The vote was yes. Like the vast majority of Chileans want a new constitution. And then it was like, who's going to draft the constitution? Is it going to be the Congress or is it going to be like a special constituent assembly? People want the constituent assembly. That just happened, uh, the vote for um, uh, those members. And now they're, they're like drafting the constitution. And it's going to be definitely more uh, welfare oriented than the old constitution. So it's going to be more about people having the right to, you know, housing and education and uh, health care in a way that the old one um, was, was leaving that up to the market. Yeah, and also it seems like uh, one thing we were discussing in the pre-interview questions is about how um, all, these, all these rights, all these things that we need um, are essential, essential stuff that people seem to be deprived of, you know, in, in uh, not just like health care, um, Right to right to be able to get a house, get get housing and get living and all these kind of things and that's that's really the, the essentials that we need to be able to self actualize. We can't even talk about kind of sex self actualization or self fulfillment or you know kind of having a rich society until we have those basics covered. You know, well those yeah, will be struggling. Absolutely. Yeah, those yeah. will be struggling. Yeah, yeah. I also think you know there's the myth. What, one of the things like I'm really interested in is. Um, and I have to say, I was really quite ignorant about this in terms of, you know, the U.S. of like, OK, so if you have countries with high inequality, could it be a little bit more bearable if they had super dynamic mobility? Right. So then, like, you have differences between the rich and, you know, the poor. But the chance as a poor person that you're going to be able to climb the socioeconomic, uh, uh, socioeconomic ladder is quite high. And I feel like uh, I don't know about how you guys feel about this, but I feel like in the U.S., that myth really persisted for a long time. Yeah. Like, okay, so there's an equality here, sure. But, but God, is this culture dynamic? Like, <laughs> you know, if you just try hard enough, you're going to get there. <laughs> and, and if you're wealthy, if you're born, you know, with a silver spoon, but like, you don't work hard, you'll probably fall a few rungs. But, you know, like, again, like, uh, my understanding is all the recent scholarships shows that's not true at all. No. It's really quite sticky. You know, and what strata you're born into, um, you know, is probably where you're going to stay. Yeah. Or very close to it. And so I mentioned this because, you know, even just visiting Chile as a kid, you notice that. In Latin America, you just notice that much more. Like, you just take that for granted. Like, oh, this is, this is how it works. Like, mobility is really low, right? But I feel like in the U.S., I just felt like, oh, okay. But, but here it's not. And then, like, you know, later on, um, a little older, <laughs> and, and you know, reading a bit more about it, and just kind of through observation, just realize, wow, it, it, it really is not. It's not really true. Um, yeah, and, and this doesn't even get into so, um, the systemic racism and and how um, you know, kind of like it's it's really it's not just about socioeconomic, but also about race and about class. Class and race kind of go together. Class, race, and gender always go together in the uh, traditional um, matrix. But uh, you also mentioned the, the book when affirmative action was white. Tell us a little bit about that and uh, how it influenced your your thinking on these topics. Oh yeah, yeah. I actually came to that a little bit later. Like I'd already been thinking about them for a while. But I thought that book was very interesting. Well, first of all, the way it sort of like flips affirmative action on its head. I think it came out in like the early off, right? And like you know, uh, well, you know, the affirmative action has been a really um, you know, controversial 
issue for a long time, but, you know, you have this writer who comes out and he's like, well, wait a minute, like, there's been these policies that have very, really sort of deliberately, uh, overtly and covertly been helping white people uh, from, I believe he starts from like the 30s or something, mm. um, through mid-century. Uh, but then, of course, by giving so many uh, white people a leg up, and since um, wealth can be sort of sticky intergenerationally, you know, it's like helped them, you know, to the present day in many ways. Whereas uh, black Americans were like systematically left out of these policies. Um, it's really like a great book. Also, like I just I, I mentioned it to you because it was like I, I hadn't read that much American. You know, it's like the kind of stuff we did not learn. Uh, growing up, and then uh, since my interests sort of uh, were more in Latin America, it sort of like didn't didn't read very much about American history or know much about uh, American, you know, like political history. Um, so, so yeah, it's such an interesting book. Like, there's just stuff in it that's completely nuts, like about like the GI Bill, for example, like how discriminatory it was. Like, I had no idea. You know, there's some like insane stat in it that's like, I think it's like three thousand some odd. Um, of like the 3,000 some odd loans that were uh, granted via the GI Bill um, uh, uh, or like maybe guaranteed by the GI Bill. I don't know exactly how it works. In Mississippi, in a particular year, two went to black veterans. Two out of 3,000 something. Like that's nuts. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. So, yeah. So you just see... Um, it was interesting. I was just uh, talking yesterday uh, with a couple of friends about there's this new book out. I have not read it yet called The Whiteness of Wealth that just talks about tax policy. I think it's I think it's just about tax policy. I have not read it uh, by Dorothy Brown. Um, it's very well regarded. Uh, I also want to uh, get academic. into and you know it's yeah. just go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say I was changing the topic to monetizing Emma and tell us a little bit about that play. And how it uh, how it works into your uh, theses and such. Yeah, that was something. So I was at that time um, I was covering what's known as securitization. So I don't know if you guys you, you might recall, like in the financial crisis of like two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Uh, one of the things that was like the, whatever it's like one of the things that sort of blew up uh, finance in the country, or at the very least exacerbated um, that crisis or brought it on was securitization was like, for example, like mortgage backed securities, um, which are bonds that bundle mortgages. And so if you're an investor and you buy that bond, you're basically the payments you're receiving are the payments that the mortgage holders are making. Um, that flows, th- those payments flow to the bond and then you as the investor get those, those payments. So I was thinking about like, well, can people securitize themselves? Can they sell their the right to their like future earnings to investors and um and i thought what if a teen teens could do that uh to get money now get money up front right um and if you think about it it's a little bit like i think what like uh, i don't know what they're called like prospectors like people that are um go around looking for like you know kids who are really good at playing baseball so they get like money people can buy like shares in that right I believe there's ways to finance this because like they're not going to make money now, but they may make a lot of money in like 10 years and then you'll get like a cut of that. Yeah. Um, 
so I was thinking about that, and so I just wrote this play about this 15-year-old girl who is part of the first teenage-backed bond. So um, this very clever investment bank comes up with this idea. We're going to get money to these like promising teens. Everybody's going to love it. Um, and the idea is the invest they'll make tons of money in their like late 20s, and that's when the investors will get their money back. Um, it's also how people, by the way, like this exists. <laughs> Since I wrote the play, uh, this happens. Like people can go to college and basically securitize themselves, have part of that tuition paid right by their future future income stream. Yeah, so, interesting. So uh, I don't uh, know that much about like, economics, but like I think of like Wolf on Wall Street and like Bernie Madoff and all these like sort of corrupt people. But is it like rampant all these? schemes that people have in the finance industry or is it is it uh pretty rare well i mean you mean like schemes in general or this particular i mean this particular one i think is, is for now it's just pretty standard and, and kosher oh okay uh, but is it is it the per- sort of thing that's just like easy to manipulate i mean the way i wrote it in my play is of course there was corruption involved that's what makes it dramatically fun right. <laughs> um but uh um uh what was i gonna say yeah i mean uh there's a, there's always all kinds of uh, financial corruption going. And then on. I heard that like it's only a small percentage of people that have stocks, and it's like so the market goes up, and then it doesn't really translate to how the average person is doing. You know, I guess it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know the stat, the, the exact stats on that offhand, but it's it's pretty skewed. It's like a, a particular. It's like I don't know, twenty percent of American households own like. 80% of the stock or 90% of the stock or something. 90% of the stock. Um, so, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's like a big chunk of the country. And yet, and yet, so many people are fascinated by it, right? The movements of the market. and Yeah, it seems like... Uh, you were talking about... I was going to say, it seems like uh, it's like a big casino where people can go in there and you know make a lot of money or, or do something specifically. And then they can also lose a lot of money. So... You know, it's a real it's a real yeah. risk. You know, where people can can bet on, like for example, the AMC stocks and the uh, GameStop uh, controversies around uh, betting on companies that were traditionally going down and be able to inflate those stocks and artificially and then make a lot of money and then ultimately, you know, have it blow up. You know, that one's fascinating. Do you know where the, how that I, I I you know I kind of followed I just kind of following it. Uh, not not closely, but um, that one's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I feel like a lot of people involved uh, had like a kind of stick it to the man. Yeah. Kind of. That's how I got as well. Yeah. But, but, you're, but, but, but you're making like trading frequency, like just by dint of trading a lot, you're not sticking it to the man. Like the, the, the companies that make money from that trading frequency are the man. <laughs> so like. You're not sticking it to anyone. Yeah. They're making tons of money off you just trading a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 yeah, I found that, like, yeah, sort of interesting. Yeah, so these are my listeners of the Truth to Power show and Ready for Brooklyn. I'm here with co-host Colt Malison and with uh, guest uh, Felipe Oza, who's a Brooklyn-based writer and uh, playwright and journalist. And uh, so talking a little bit about themes of the show, I know we, t- we brought up uh, the question um, – you know, how do you interpret uh, the term truth to power? And, and as a journalist, how do you kind of, um, what's your take on that? And what's your take on the personal political 
Uh, so you, you gave very interesting answers. I'd like to explore that uh, identity, sure, politics, sure. and all that, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so which one are you, which one are you asking me one in particular right now? You can pick uh, one. You can pick. Uh, you can pick whichever one feels <laughs> like it speaks to you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, these are always a little tricky for me. I mean, personal is political. I think as I as I wrote you, like as a gay man, it's just like my identity is political, right? It's pretty pretty salient. <laughs> like it's, it's the, the 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 politics of it, politics of it are pretty salient. So, um, uh, you know, I think I, I wrote uh, a little bit. I was thinking about it a little bit, like just how much it's changed um, in the last. Uh, you know, I'm in my late 40s, and um, when I was uh, younger, you know, it's like gay marriage was a complete joke, you know? I think even, like, in the 90s, right? Like, yeah, yeah it, it was. Uh, yeah. And just, like, things like that, like, really basic rights. Um, and, now, and now we've got them, but then, of course, there's always the setback, which is the Supreme Court right now. Yeah. Uh, and how religious groups can basically define uh, what, you know, I as a gay man can or cannot do. About adoption, and, uh, right? About adoption you're talking about? Adop- yeah, no, but also, um, yeah, I think that's right. Like, because, like, so, like, is not, there was a recent ruling about, like, the Catholic, I think it was a Catholic organization that could deny. Yeah, I think that's right. That's exactly. Adoption, yeah. They that's could exactly deny people that. Also, the, like, the, the birth, like, what is, like, the wedding cake controversy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that bakers, um, Christian bakers, but, could know, say no to uh, giving a wedding cake to a gay couple. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and but, but it's it's just undeniable, like how the strides have just been huge uh, on that front. But then you know the right, you know, we'll we'll just move on to something else. And right now, I think a lot of it's like what you see, like critical race theory is like suddenly everywhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're completely obsessed with it. Um, you know, I guess they got bored with climate change not being real, so now it's <laughs> critical race theory, and then also obviously trans rights because that's that's the hot button, right? Gender, and so you know, go after the trans kids. Yeah, um, it's amazing how old, it's amazing how the the conservative movement has been able to uh, kind of get a lot of mileage out of quick talking points. You know, like they, they're like sound bites. They they kind of yeah. do the say say the same things over and over until it, like gets in the whoever listens to it it gets in their head you know yeah little sound bites and little talking points yeah it's very effective yeah whereas the left is like you know has these subtle arguments that sometimes contradict each other you know it's like uh you know subtle arguments around for example like someone was just mentioning to me how uh on the the progressive side it's like we like to say that uh, race is a construct and and at the same time we're saying that you know like uh the, the perception is reality and that, you know, we're perceiving that we need to fight for more rights for minorities. But of course, the, the, these things are very subtle arguments that require a little nuance to get into. And it's a little beyond that. Yeah. The basic idea is basic uh, comprehension of the, of the average person, you know? Oh, absolutely. Also like, you know, you're listening to Fox news. It's like what, like nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, you're kind of winding down. Your brain doesn't want to absorb too much and they know exactly what to do. Yeah. <laughs> just like, you know, to just like plant that little seed in there. Uh, like you guys were saying, just repeating it over and over again, like uh, hyper uh, simplifying it, right? Like, well, lying, but also, you know, something that's like really easy to digest uh, very quickly. 
um, never getting into the complexity or the nuance of it. Yeah, and then we have, and then we have people like. Was that? Do they even define critical race theory when they talk about it? I don't think so. It's it's just a like the boogeyman, you know. It comes up like the boogeyman, yeah. yeah? So even someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who we got to the point where there's like absurdist viewpoint so absurd and and uh, they're taken seriously i mean i just can't believe we're, we're spending uh our our main time just even addressing some of the things she says you know so out oh, there it's so out there yeah. so left field it's so out there but on some you know? level but on some level didn't we we already hit that with trump right? yeah exactly exactly yeah first, remember when he was first running and like you know so many of us uh were like this, this is a joke of course you know, it was a joke. It was a complete joke. Come on, you guys can't be serious. This this guy is, you know, he's just a complete, totally fraudulent. He's like just. I, I, it, it, it really, it still blows my mind when I think of like those first, that first like you know, once he threw his hat in the ring. Yeah, but even before um, that, we have like people like George W. Bush, and we have Dan Quayle, and we have uh, Sarah Palin, who are starting to seem to be like. Harbingers for this this movement of the the common man, you know, the of the perceived, you know, dumb it down, don't talk elitist to me, you know, kind of movement. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Bush, of course, hilarious. Also, another like person born into tremendous wealth. Right. Yeah, and then we have like uh, this slow deterioration of the dialogue, the discourse in this country to like yeah. really like common language instead of as opposed to like, uh, you know, kind of the leaders, you know, when you look at speeches of presidents prior, they're always like pieces of literature almost. And, you know, we have, now we have this thing that where it's like a fifth grader speaking, you know, off the cuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, with Trump, yeah. it's just insult humor. And that's yeah. Like, right. It's like the most base insult humor. That's like the rhetoric. But you also had a theory about you also have a uh, dialogue about how uh, about Elizabeth Warren and how and why people like Elizabeth Warren are not able to be successful. It was interesting to to read that portion of that. So talking about like of course yeah. we understand sexism is a play, but there's also other fa- factors that she has like nuanced approaches to comp- uh, complex I don't problems. Know how you yeah. feel about it, but I was a fan, and like to me, it it just yeah plays into this idea that like. She's like the anti-magic pill in a way, right? Because it's like other people just, you know, huge overarching terms. I'm not, and you know, this isn't just the right. The left does this too, you know? Um, and because it's easier to sell. And, it's, and it, I get it. It's like that's how you drive people emotionally to the polls, right? Yeah. Um, and so, but here comes someone who's like, here's my incredibly like, you know, Baroque, well, Baroque makes it sound like it's not, maybe that's not the right word, but, you know, like, like really comprehensive set of plans. And, you know, I remember going to her website and being like, holy shit, like, there's a lot on here. Yeah. And, you know, and it's like, but it, but it, it accepts how complicated problems are. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's like she really had a really good wealth tax proposal. Um, she really did have good stuff about, like, eradicating racist policies from the government. She she did. I mean, and I think, I think Biden might have borrowed some of them, and, you know, they ended up in other places. And, um, you know, I know that she was accused of taking some stuff from Sanders. I get it. Uh, but, but, yeah, I think uh, I think that was part of it. Um, 
was that charisma Trump's policy year? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think of like Hillary Clinton. A lot of people just didn't like her because there was like jokes about her since the '90s, and um, I don't know. I guess the combination of the media and how they talk uh, uh, and at their speeches and stuff. Uh, I guess, I don't know, but it's I think it's politics is kind of part of like you know how they talk in front of a crowd and and you know just I don't know. I, I think about the 2016 is like so many people didn't like Hillary Clinton just because of the smear campaign on her. Yeah. yeah, also the the yeah. the likability of her. Yeah, that's what the, I was looking the for. The likability yeah. of her was in question, yeah. yeah. But I think Elizabeth Warren has some of that yeah. likability issues too, I think. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and a part of it is just just being a woman. Like that's part of the, part of the problem. But I think but, AOC uh, has kind of overcome a lot of that. I think because she's younger, she seems to a little bit more of that uh, appeal that uh, you know, that that these these more entrenched kind of neoliberal like of, with Hillary Clinton neoliberals c- couldn't seem to pull pull together. But although, but Fox uh, News like analyze everything she says, they, yeah. they, they like they try to bash her as much as they can. Exactly, so I don't know. Exactly, but yeah. I mean, she's young though, so we'll see like ten twenty years to see if it makes a difference. I don't yeah, know. we'll see how towards the end of her career. They're kind uh, of scared of her, right? That's yeah, the yeah. That I get. They're just scared. I mean, they have to they have to keep hammering away. a movie or read in a story 
I just all of the seeds of that are in are in Pirandello. Um, also, like this idea that like characters that aren't finished yet, that they're in mid creation, um, and that they need they're somehow unable to complete the story they were originally birthed to tell. And it just, I just see that everywhere in the way people talk about their lives now, you know, the way we, I don't know, talk about our lives in therapy or like read Michelle Obama's Becoming or, you know, it's the way Oprah talks about, you know, life is a journey. And it's just, it's all sort of there. I mean, he's very, um, Pirandello is kind of sardonic in many ways. So um, it's not like earnest right um but it's uh it's really i i just find it a re- still a fascinating and, and and super relevant play yeah it's interesting um, to think about yeah. in terms of uh reality drama and uh reality tv drama oh, yeah, and that's right. kind of thing. yeah yeah and how we become the character that uh you know we have developed improvisational kind of style where we're like creating our own character it's partially fictitious it's also partially kind of yourself and your truth but but also it's kind of manufactured in a way that is trying to create a character for the audience to consume you know so right and he yeah. complicates that in the play what i recall like it's always complicated this on what is this authenticity which i think is is really quite interesting and, and seems very modern to me very contemporary um you know i mean social media things it's like you the, the curated self right what is the self that you're that you're putting out to the world. Um, is that your true self? Is this even like a question anymore? <laughs> like, I, I don't know. It's, yeah. It's all very rich terrain, I think, dramatically. And, and he minds it really well. Uh, and that was a hundred years ago. Yeah. It seems like all the time. It was a su- super controversial play, obviously when it first came out. People yeah. Like, what the fuck is going on? You know? <laughs> um, so, what, what was the name of the play again? I, I didn't catch the name. Six Characters in oh, Search yeah, so of an it's Author. Called, it's, called, it's, called, it's, called, it's called Six Characters in Search of an Author. Okay. And um, the, the, the playwright Italian, his name is Luigi Pirandello, and he was just, you know, he did a lot of, I guess it would be modernism. I'm not so great sometimes if you're going to genre, but, you know, he has a few plays that are, are really quite interesting. Um, he deals a lot with, like, madness in this play, too. Uh, but but madness like and performance and artifice, um, as well. Uh, yeah, uh, definitely worth checking out. I think you might. Mm-hmm. You know, plays are always a little bit tricky to read, right? It's like you kind of they're really meant to be performed. So. Yeah. Um, There's a whole movement of like absurdists and all that kind of thing, and I think it's interesting to think about. But also, you mentioned uh, some like it hot as being a uh, a uh, movie starring Malcolm Monroe. Um, I think it was Charles Malmero and uh, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon. Yeah. Yeah. I saw it a long time ago. It's a good movie. Yeah, you mentioned that as being like uh, an interesting artifact that we can revisit, people to revisit. So tell us a bit I about think it's that. It's such a fun. I mean, I think you, I can't remember what the, the, exactly how this, you were like, what, oh, what do you think people should, anybody in the world should experience? Yeah. It's just, it's just a delightful movie. It's like, what I love is these movies. I mean, this one just really stands out to me as this like mid-century movie that's so subversive in very clever ways. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, so basically it follows these two characters played by uh, 
Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon, uh, they're musicians. They like witness some kind of massacre by the mob. They have to disguise themselves as women. And then they join this like all girl band that goes down to Florida to perform. Marilyn Monroe, she's like the singer of the band. Tony Curtis falls in love with her. Um, and, you know, first of all, I love stuff that has like dis- everyone's disguised in different ways, right? And what's interesting is Tony Curtis disguises, I think, more than once. So not only is he disguised as a woman, courting Marilyn Monroe, but at some point, He's like a man again, pretending to be like an oil magnate, courting her at the same time. So it has these like multiple layers of performance and play. Yeah. And today it may not be considered uh, that big a deal, but at that time it was a pretty big deal because, uh, uh, you know, the, the views of society on, on, on kind of gender identity were very different, you know? Oh yeah. Also like this was at the very end of the movie, is basically, so it's this character who's been pursuing a guy who's been pursuing um, Jack Lemmon as a woman throughout the entire movie. And then Jack Lemmon at the very end is like, listen, I, I'm, I'm not going to make a good, like, you know, wife for you, a girlfriend or whatever, because I'm this, I'm this. And he keeps on like, this guy keeps on saying, well, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. And then finally he takes off the wig and he's like, listen, I'm a guy. And then the very last line is, well, nobody's perfect. and it's like wait a minute like what is the thing about i mean about homosexuality in 1959 yeah i mean and it was massively popular yeah interesting interesting yeah it's it's really and also it's just so well written i mean it's billy wilder great director uh i think he wrote the screenplay as well and um and i think for just like you know, kind of like American, like a, a American culture. It's just, you know, everyone should see a Marilyn Monroe movie at some point. <laughs> and she's great in it. You know, apparently she was a complete mess filming it, but like she's really sort of like incandescent in it to see what the appeal was, you know, um, why she was such a star. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I don't know. What do you guys think about it? Do you, do you, have you seen it or are you? I saw it a long time ago. I remember enjoying it. I saw it with my family, like maybe when I was a teenager, so I don't remember the details, but. I enjoyed it. I laughed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I saw yeah, a long time ago I as love, well. I yeah. love the... I'm sorry? I said I saw, I saw a long time ago as well, so I don't really remember it. Yeah. I just think it's one of those... I just love these, um, you know, like old movies that kind of like stand out for, for, for different reasons, right? Um, and this one's the rare one that like stands out for being subversive and yet also was like massively popular and and i believe is still considered like one of the best comedies ever written um so like really holds up um even like you know just like its formal qualities yeah Uh, pacing you know like pacing editing writing uh um yeah okay so you're listening to the radio for brooklyn independent listener supported radio uh radio for brooklyn is mostly supportive for donations from listeners like you so if you'd like to give a one-time donation or monthly pledge, go to RadioForBrooklyn.org slash donate. There, find some great T-shirts, mugs, and other swag we'd like to send you to say thanks. You can also use your phone to text RFB123 to 44321. It'll totally take a moment. You'll be able to use the digital wall for your donation. Finally, if you shop on Amazon, you can go to Amazon.com slash smile. And register Ready for Brooklyn as your nonprofit you wish to support. When you do, present your sales. We'll go to RFB and cost you nothing. No donation is too, too big or too small. Whatever you can afford will make a huge difference. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts, and we wish you, listeners, health and happiness. 
as we finish weathering the COVID storm. Um, if you're listening to RFB when you're not in front of your computer, please consider downloading your uh, our free mobile apps for iPhone and Android, developed in the App Store for iPhone or Google Play Store for Android. And be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for latest news about new programming and upcoming RFB events. You can sign up at radiofooking.org slash newsletter. Okay. So, um, yeah, I just want to give a couple of shout-outs to Radio for Looking in that sense. Uh, also, I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about uh, – you mentioned a little bit about um, wildlife biology and your interest in that. And about, uh, it was very interesting. It was kind of a left-field topic given our the rest of the conversation. Yeah, but yeah. You know. <laughs> it really was. But you did ask – well, like you asked well, – I can't remember how you <laughs> phrased it um, – well, I think it's because you phrased it in a particular way that was like, wait, now I'm going to find the question. Like, what topics can you talk about for ages? And when I mentioned this to my husband, he was like, okay, let's face it. Like, you just, like, you're really into the nature documentary. <laughs> so I was like, okay, this is true. This is very true. So, um, and it's I, actually, I am starting to work on something. I can't really talk about it yet because it's so uh, nebulous right now. But it's, um, I've been thinking lately about the collision. Well, it's going to sound a little, you'll see where the connection is. The collision of commerce and nature, like how wildlife is monetized and enters human culture as products. Yeah. For perfume and really fucked up ways. And also like how it's like totally deracinated from the animal itself. You know, it's like, you'll just see this crazy looking animal with like, you know, huge like, like whatever like weird formations on its body and then like oh that's part of a you know this animal emits some smell that you know if you add a few chemicals it's like delightful you know it's like this flowery scent you know <laughs> but it's like a disgusting animal <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> so um, i'm just sort of interested in that um but yeah for me like nature documentaries that's just how i tell like it's like put me in front of even like extremely violent, like, you know, hyenas tearing apart a gazelle. I'm just like watching it while I'm having dinner. And it's like <laughs> wonderful. But I love, um, I just love the wonder, right? It's like, it just brings me back. I think to being a kid, it's like, uh, I love David Attenborough. I don't know if you guys ever watched nature documentaries, but like the really polished ones that, uh, the BBC puts out like planet earth. Um, just like, you know, you're, you're traveling, basically, uh, seeing different parts of the world and just how, like, how little we know about animal behavior. So it's like, you know, so things, like animals that we just feel like we, oh, we've, I've seen this in the zoo like a million times. And then, uh, you know, David Attenborough will be like, well, you think you know what a zebra, you know, does, but what it really, you know, what they're discovering now in the last few years is, is it actually works like this? And um, I sort of love that. Just It's just like endless source of like wonder for me. Yeah, it's um, really interesting because like a lot of times when nature is monetized, it's like about the serene aspects of nature or the, you know, calming aspects of nature. But of course, those who watch these actual not nature documentaries know that the way that, um, you know, it's portrayed in, in the documentaries is usually about the, the violent aspects of it. But that play between the violent and the serene is very much the the appeal to many nature uh, fanatics, you know? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like that, uh, the beauty and the brutality, right? It's like, it's just so breathtakingly beautiful. And then, you know, and I think I mentioned this when I wrote you back. It's like, you know, I'm just 
I'll, sometimes I'll go on YouTube and I'm like, oh, I should stop going on YouTube because the algorithms are like, you might like this. <laughs> you know, what I was saying earlier, it's like hyena tearing apart an, uh, an impala. And I'm yeah. like, oh no. Don't <laughs> click, don't click. Of course I click it. Yes, of course. Because it's like, <laughs> and often it's like people on the safari. So it's just like regular people like us who are just like happen to be in like Kruger National Park in South South Africa, and all of a sudden they're like, "What's going on? Oh my God, honey!" And it's just like seeing this horrible, this horrible savage thing taking place. But that is nature, yeah, of course, yeah. That's... Yeah, those a lot of those documentaries take a long time to they take like a long time to make because I think that they like plan a tripod and a camera and then just go away and then come back and, and see what happens. Oh, I guess. it's incredible. I mean, the, the way that's like. Like my heroes are are nature people who like document documentary filmmakers that do that do like nature documentaries. I mean, it's like it's extraordinary. <laughs> you would think so, sometimes they they stay. So sometimes they're like, you know, it's like somebody is just lying down as still as possible with a camera, trying to capture those like three seconds of every you know okay maybe like one minute of every year that this particular bird of paradise does it you know, courtship dance for the female. And they're just there waiting, like without moving. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to just give you, Felipe, I want to give you a chance to plug your websites and such before the last minute of our oh, yeah. time. So yeah, it's just, it's just uh, thank you. Yeah, it's just FelipeOsa.com, uh, F-E-L-I-P-E-O-S-S-A.com. Uh, yeah, and the digital production that I have up right now is called The Ultimate Stimulus. Uh, it's just on YouTube. So if you just search the ultimate stimulus, you'll find it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. And any last thoughts for yeah. the audience to connect everything together? Any no, last, you uh, guys were great. This yeah. Is like, this is so interesting. I feel like, you know, yeah, this is very stimulating. Thank you. Uh, thank you. you. Think about a lot of things. Yeah. And people to do DJ, on the 4th of July, but it was great. Yeah. <laughs> and people can listen to the rest of our, our ORV. Uh, on uh, RadioFearBrooklyn.org slash Truth to Power. I think this is like, I don't even want to guess which episode this is, but people can listen to the rest of the episodes there and uh, stream as much to like binge listen as they do now. Uh, and then, uh, and catch us next week at uh, Sundays at 11. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks. It's good Thank to be you. here. Thank you. All right. Take care. Have a, have a great thanks. rest of the weekend. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Nice talking to you guys. Bye. Take care. Uh,